We have to approach our businesses as whole people. You're putting your soul into what you're making and selling, and you can't then pretend that your soul doesn't exist. We live compartmentalized lives. We have our ambitious and achieving parts that lead when we're on the job, and we have parenting parts that show up when we're with our kids. We have parts of us that enjoy being with friends in those rare times these days when we get to reconnect with our favorite people. But when do we ever get to be whole? As leaders, it's even more challenging to bring all parts of us to what we do and how we show up and work in life when the pressure is to exile or compartmentalize the parts of us we fear will be shamed or rejected. But leading with our whole self? Nah, it's not tidy or efficient but it is the path of the unburdened leader. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. We too often exile the parts of us that hold complex emotions and difficult parts of our story at the expense of our wholeness and not respecting our own wholeness in favor of living a compartmentalized life is perpetuated in the spaces we live and lead. So we hide what we've been taught to believe is not acceptable away. And what we hide is often rooted from the soul of what makes us unique and feel most alive. Making space to lead complexity means signing up to navigate emotions, beliefs, and perspectives that do not fit into a tidy box. This is the call right now. To dig into nuance and hang out in this place of complexity requires awareness that cannot be put back in the proverbial toothpaste tube. And this is super vulnerable. But remember, respecting the whole person still requires boundaries and honoring your core values and developing systems that move you and your business forward. The fear of chaos is more about the fear of change and what that change means for our own safety and status. And what we are seeing is how leadership that respects the whole person is rewriting the rules on what is professional and appropriate. Oh, the rules. And you know the rules, right? The shoulds about what is professional and okay for business and work and what is not. But these rules, they crush our souls along with our clarity of voice and desire to create. And they continue to dehumanize and marginalize. Approaching business and people with a perspective that values all parts of those they lead requires doing the inner work to navigate the complexity of emotions and lived experiences with compassion and curiosity instead of shame and correction. My guest today lives this work and this approach. Megan Alman is a jewelry designer, metalsmith, educator, and entrepreneur with over a decade of experience in selling art through a variety of channels, And I am a proud owner of several pieces of her jewelry. I've attended her classes and she is such a gifted teacher and artist. Currently, Megan is running her jewelry line and the online community artists and profit makers for fellow creatives who sell high-end products. She's a best-selling creative live instructor. Her designs have been featured in Elle Decor, Better Homes and Gardens, Cooking Light, and top-rated blogs like Design Sponge. Now, pay attention to how Megan discusses how we can care, but not be burdened by judgment from ourselves or others. 
I really love this insight she offered. Listen for Megan's discussion around shame, especially around our workplaces and what we charge for our services. And notice how Megan approached her own rumble or with anxiety that shifted so much for her. Now, please welcome Megan Alman to the Unburdened Leader. Megan, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So one of the things we often do here on the Unburdened Leader podcast is we jump in and go deep right away. <laughs> so I, I want to talk about one of the biggest influences in your life, your mom, who you lost to ovarian cancer. I can't believe it's been almost nine yeah, years. It'll, it'll be nine years very soon, which is yeah, like a, a instant and forever at the same time. Wow. That's a instant and forever. I, I feel anyone who's experienced loss understands that. I'd love for you to tell me about your mom and, and how her impact shows up and how you lead and how you create. Yeah. So my mom was, she was an incredible woman and, and anyone who was fortunate enough to know her really saw that. So I always like to think of it as she just did not care what people thought of her. She had that amazing quality where like she was who she was and you either liked that or you didn't. Um, and she just really didn't care. But at the same time, she was always such a caring and generous person. You know, I, I'm one of four, I'm the oldest of four kids. And, um, you know, she was always the one that would like take kids home from school when they needed a ride. Like it didn't matter if the kid lived on the other side of town, it didn't matter. Like she was the one who was there and caring. And so I think that that ability to be like such a caring person, but at the same time, so not burdened by judgment is such a rare Mm. quality. And to grow up experiencing that, I mean, it's just incredible, just is such a huge role model. And then on top of that, just the fact that she always encouraged, you know, myself and my siblings and really any, any person that she came in contact with, like, to like encouraged and supported us and what we wanted to do. You know, there was never any doubt when I was like, Hey guys, I'm, you know, my parents, I'm going to be an artist. And they were like, great, how can we support you? And my mom was a big factor in that. And I know like, it's so rare to get that. And so it just, she was really an, an incredible woman. You said something that is echoing in my head right now that your mom was not burdened by judgment. Can you unpack that a little bit more what that means to you? Yeah. You know, I think it's so easy to get wrapped up in like, well, if I do this, what will people think of me? And mm-hmm. I just don't ever remember her behaving like that. Instead, it was like, this is what I think. This is how I feel. You know, this is what I think is right in the world and just and good. And if you don't like that, that is not my problem. And if you don't like me, that is not my problem. Um, I'm just going to continue to be the person that I am. Um, and I think it, you know, I grew up in a small town. There's, you know, it's that very kind of judgmental small town mentality. And she was not from that small town. She grew up in a suburb outside of Philly. So definitely a more, you know, diverse place than where, where I grew up and where she was raising her family. But she was just like, I see these people being judgy and that's not, that's not who I want to be. And that, and, but also if they want to judge me, that's their problem, not mine. Yeah. Cause I think there's one thing to say, I don't care what other people think. Cause I think there's a point that we do, I wonder, but it almost, I get the sense that your mom just knew who she was. So no matter what people thought of her, it didn't shake her. Right. I think I think that's a really good way to explain it. Yeah, she just knew who she was, and she knew what she valued and and what she believed in, and so she was always just very comfortable speaking out, being herself, and not worrying if people didn't like that. 
you wrote a beautiful eulogy and I'll, I want to link it in the show notes to your mom. And it really had me as I was prepping for our conversation today as, as a mom now, it just was inspiring to me. And even for those who aren't parents, whoever you want to make an impact on, it's a wonderful eulogy. And it the sense I got is that you were just loved as you were. It wasn't an agenda. I suspect that you're the, the sense I get from your mom. Oh, she, she, you were clear what was okay and not okay. <laughs> there were only some things yes. that she probably, I get the sense there was the hammer, yes. but what a gift to be that person to somebody to makes me, makes me think not only to my kids, but to anyone I come into contact with is how to just be the bridge and, 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 and love them where they're at. Yeah. And accept them. And, for that. and I think that level of support is just so important. And, and I'm not a mom, I'm not a parent, but I do try to embody that with, I, I coach high school cross country and track. I have, you know, a niece and nephews, and I try to embody that, you know, with all of the young people I come in contact with for sure. But then really anyone I come in contact with, you know, she's just such a, a huge model for me of how to show up in the world. Wow. So this incredible foundation you were given from your mom and and how old was she when she died? She was 55. Oh, gosh. So far too young. You? And I was 30. So I was 30. And then my siblings were all younger. My youngest brother was 21. You know, and I, I feel like we're getting slightly better in how we understand grief, but we still have a long way to go. Um, and we do it horribly in our country, uh, our culture here in the States, particularly. How did your grief and the, with the loss of this incredible influence in your life. How did that impact your ability to create and make your art? I mean, you're an entrepreneur, you're an artist, you're a teacher. How did how did grief show up as you were needing to do all these things to create and lead? Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, we do such a bad job of kind of talking about it. And I feel really fortunate that I was in a position to actually be able to like lean in and acknowledge my grief, which doesn't always get to happen, right? Like we so much, we have to go back to the status quo. And so for me at the time, I had basically three quarters time employee making the majority of my jewelry. And so um, I was able to kind of hand that side of the business off to her. And I really, I leaned into other I'll call them non-commercial forms of art making as part of my grief. My mom was actually a painter. And so before I ended up deciding to go to school to be a metalsmith, I had also planned on going to school to be a painter. And then I discovered jewelry making. And I was like, this is amazing. You can go to college for this. Like, that's what I want to do. In hindsight, it makes sense. My dad runs a machine shop or owns a machine shop. So like it was, a, it's a nice blend of ah. the two. But so for, you know, the 10, not quite 10 years since I had been in college, I guess, I hadn't done any painting of my own. Um, and so after, I actually remember on the morning of her funeral, I was like out in the garage. My husband was like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm looking for my paints. I'm I, like, I need to find my paints. And it took me a couple of months, I think, even after that moment to get to a point where I was like, okay, I need to start painting. Like, it's just something I needed to do. In the meantime, I was making a lot of, I made some metal bowls, which is like, you take a flat sheet of metal and you hammer on it and it becomes a round form. And that was like, literally like just pound out my grief on metal. And so, so I did that. And then eventually I started painting um, and I did a lot of painting and some of it came into the business and some of it didn't, but it was just, for me, that was like, I really needed to move into art making as just a way to channel that grief. And I notice now, like when I'm in, I haven't had any situations that were that extreme of a grief situation since then, but I noticed like that becomes my default. So like when, when we lost our dog a few years ago, it was like, 
you know, it didn't take long for me to be like, okay, I'm in the studio and I, and I have to make some paintings. And, um, but having that way to sort of just move through grief, I, I think was so important because I'm not sure how I would have handled it poorly. I, I would have handled it poorly. Um, not to say that I handled it the best because again, we don't have a lot of good models, right? We don't have a lot of good models. We don't talk about grief enough. Um, and it, it definitely impacted, you know, things in the business, it impacted my confidence level in a, in a lot of ways. Um, so I had to work through some of that stuff. But I do feel fortunate that I had the art making um, as something to fall back on. Tell me more about how this impacted your confidence. Was it the loss of your mom or just moving through the grief or a combination of both? Or you know, I think else? it was it was a lot of things. I think it was, it was losing my mom. So, you know, when you lose someone who's such a big champion for you, like yeah. that, that hits hard. Uh, and then I think we, there was a lot of complicated family dynamic stuff that happens, which we also don't talk about in, you know, in grief, when you have multiple people who are grieving a person and they're all grieving in different ways, it, there can, family tension can come up. We don't talk about that enough, but it, that can happen. And so I think some of that kind of came into play as well. And just, you know, when I think it's, it's so easy to embody this confidence when you have that kind of confident person like cheering you on, you know, in your corner. And, um, and so my business was really built on that. And then it was suddenly like, I didn't have that. And I felt lost and alone. And so when you feel lost and alone, like you shrink inside yourself and you, and you lose that confidence. So for me, and you know, that manifested in things like underpricing my work and undervaluing, which is so ironic because that is like wow. the number one thing that I teach. Um, is, right. is like pricing your work, valuing, you know, your time. And, I was letting like other voices kind of seep in because I didn't have, I didn't have the confidence to stand up and say like, no, this is my work. This is my value. And it took me a long time to unpack that because you just don't realize when you're in the middle of it, you know, how much it's impacting you. It, I'm just, I'm thinking about the champions in our life, right? We, those, those folks and, and, and for you losing a champion that maybe you didn't even, it sounds like you didn't realize the extent of how much her support impacted how you show up on a day-to-day -day basis. And then there's this grieving and then a recalibration of how to champion you. What were some of the voices that seeped in that maybe hadn't gotten through um, before your mom's loss? Yeah, you know, you just end up with people, there's, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of price shame that happens online. Like I see it even amongst like women mm. entrepreneurs where those little offhanded handed comments of like, I would never spend that much. or Oh, that's like, that's so expensive. And you, you don't take those to heart or like, I was good at not taking them to heart. And then suddenly I wasn't good at it anymore. Suddenly like they were all creeping in and they just compounded in like the self-doubt and, and the loneliness. And, and yeah, so I think that was really kind of what came out of that. And, and it's made me really like recognize how how problematic that is when especially women entrepreneurs is like whether you're in the same field or different fields doing that kind of price shaming because it's i know from all of the artist makers that i coach and i know from what i've had to go through myself like i know how hard it is to say like this is where my work needs to be this is the value of it and then when you have more of the voices creeping in that are devaluing it than are saying like no you're worth it it's really hard to get past that how have you gotten past that over the years? I just have to kind of keep reminding myself that like 
I, you know, for, I like to say anything can be any price first of all. So like you, you know, like it's okay. You can set the prices for where they need and want to be. But I think the other thing is looking at where that kind of negative talk comes from and understanding like the systemic things that come into it. So looking at capitalism and the ways that capitalism devalues labor and makes us think that things should be cheap and how that creeps into like all of our mindsets and, and, you know, makes us feel like we have to work 24 seven and, and not get paid well. And so kind of looking at all of those forces also helped me realize like, Hey, this is not, yes, like part of my internal stuff did this, but the reason that people say these things to me or the reasons that we feel these things in the atmosphere is not just because something's wrong inside our heads. It's because we're all operating in this very broken system of capitalism. It really is something that we've breathed in and out that we just don't know, like the frog in the boiling water type mm-hmm. of thing. And and this loss really brought a lot of that to your, it sounds like it teased out some of that stuff that was there too. Are there, are there any other ways that this very, very powerful loss of your mom. How how else does it influence how you're leading and running your business today? Yeah, I think for me, the way that it really influences is just always trying to be true to her legacy of being mm. that person who is not afraid to speak my mind, but at the same time is still, you know, caring for other people and making sure that my people feel supported. And so I have, I started in 2018. I run a membership community called Artists and Profit Makers. And so like when the pandemic started, I was like, okay, I'm going to take care of my people first. And like, these are my people in my group. And so making sure that, you know, my people were taken care of and then, okay, like now, now things are taken care of. And then I'm okay to like go out in the world and speak my mind and, and share things. And so kind of embodying those two things for me is really the best thing that I can do, I think, to, to try to uphold her legacy. I think that's so important. What a what an incredible way to kind of stay true to our values and honor those who've championed us for sure. And there's also something you wrote in in preparation for this conversation. You wrote that you also recognize that people have so much more than just their business. And I think this is a big deal to me that we've bifurcated our work life and our personal life. And this drives me crazy. It just it it we are whole people. And so you and you acknowledging that you start to see you that shifted your mindset too. can you talk a little bit more about how about that mindset shift and how then you are caring for your people in a more holistic way? Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's this myth that like, you know, we're supposed to again things that come back from capitalism, right? We're supposed to divorce all the stuff that's going on in our lives. And when we show up for our business, it's like, no, here I am. And and it's it's business time. And that's not possible. Um, And so one of the things is that you know, in my community, like, there's no conversation that's off limits. And so we will, like, it's like, hey, it's a rough week, guys, I'm getting my period, like, we'll talk about things like that. We'll talk about like, what's going on with the dynamic in your family, you know, if you're feeling burnt out, it might be because of the business, but it might be because of what's going on with family life. Um, I'm seeing that a lot right now in the pandemic with women who have young children and and have to deal with schooling. Like one of the women in my community, her daughter's been in virtual kindergarten this year. And every time she says virtual kindergarten, like my, my brain explodes. I'm like, no, kindergartners should not sit in front of computers. Like they should just play. And yes, they need to learn, but we need to do this better. But so, and that creates like an enormous amount of stress on her. 
And so part of it is just, you know, reminding people like, hey, you are human. These things do impact your business. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about cutting ourselves some slack if we're not achieving our business goals as fast as we might want to because our lives are getting in the way. You know, reminding people that it's okay to to take a step back and and do things in your life or that it's okay to take time even take time off from your business to offer care for people. Like that is you know, and obviously everyone has different financial situations. And so there are lots of different implications with that. But, you know, it's okay if you need to step back from the business because life is getting in the way, because sometimes you can't do both. How do you navigate that in your community when you see someone who's going through something? And then I says, the story I make up is that they minimize it. Like, I know I shouldn't let this get in the way or, you know, it's just, you know, I, I'm, I'm not over this yet. How do you respond to that in your community? Yeah, you know, we never try to minimize feelings. Like feelings, nice. feelings are feelings. And and usually we we come back and we look at the root causes a lot of the time. So it's like, okay, I know nice. I shouldn't be feeling this way. No, you're allowed to feel this way. And let's look at why you feel this way. Do you feel this way because it's the seventh hundred time that it feels like your husband dropped the ball? Or because, you know, you had parents who bred a certain work ethic in you, which in, in retrospect seemed great, but is actually like giving you money hangups. So, you know, we're always looking at what's causing these things so that we can unpack them. It's not just like, oh, I felt it and I have to ignore it. It's like, no, like, let's, let's talk about it. Like, I definitely had people in the community be like, wow, you just saved me a whole bunch of therapy. Thanks, Megan, which is like, it's not, it's not my goal to be the therapist, but, but you realize like you can't divorce when you realize you can't divorce your life and your feelings from your business, then we have to look at all of them. We have to approach our businesses as whole people. And especially as, you know, I deal with artists and makers. So like you're putting your soul into what you're making and selling and you can't then pretend that your soul doesn't exist. Thank you for that. And I I mean, if more leaders led like you did, I would gladly see the entire personal development (laughs) field shrink, right? I mean, I think that that's, and that's part of my mission is to shrink that because every leader is impacting their little circle of influence the way you are. So, so I love that. I'm curious too, like when you give permission and have conversations of permission and, and witnessing and respecting the feelings and the struggle. Do you see shifts in those in your community and, and building their confidence and charging what they're worth and all of that? Oh, for sure. Um, someone just come in this morning. She was like, I raised my prices and I just sold the first thing at, like at this new price and I'm so excited. Um, but, uh, but on top of that too, what I've realized is for members in the community, just being able to express this stuff is such yes. a big deal because you can't always express yes. it. You can't, you can't always express it on Instagram. You can't always express it. And so sometimes just like needing to get it out and have people say, I see you, I support you. Your feelings are valid. Like that in and of itself is, can help transform things. Um, and so I think that's really Literally. important too literally can it's salve on a wound and it, and it's it's so literally probably the legacy of your mom where you're championing those in your community i see you i believe in you you've got this and then, and then having space to witness but and even deconstruct yeah. right i mean i'm from the midwest and so work ethic i mean shoveling snow in below zero weather you do without thinking and maybe even in your shorts if you're a little you know we were a little wacky sometimes about when you're weather. Snow, I get it. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Thank you for acknowledging that. You're from yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah, get you it. get it. You get it. 
So I appreciate that. I, I just love that those little moments of you championing those in your community is just a little bit more of your mom showing up through you. That's powerful. I'd love to switch a little bit and talk about a kind of a series of a feature that you did on social media and on your blog where you started to feature and celebrate messy art studios to combat what you called studio shame. So of course that caught my eye and I know we chatted about that. I'm like, let's talk more about yeah. this. Walk, walk me through how you define studio shame and why you decided to address this topic. Yeah. So there's this like conflicting pressure on Instagram in particular, right? Because it's a visual medium that you are supposed to, as artists and makers, like show your process, show your workspace, bring people in. And I agree with that to varying degrees. But then the feeling is like, oh, well, it's Instagram. So it has to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, I can't share it. And I don't know any artist or maker who has a perfect studio for one reason or, or another. So like for me, I have a, I'm, I'm so lucky. I have a gorgeous studio space, but I'm messy. Like that is part of my creative processes. It's, it's chaos a lot of the time where, and I know other artists and makers who are working in less than ideal spaces. They're in the basement. I've been there. They're in the garage. I've been there. They're at the dining room table, like all of those things. And so they feel like they can't share because they feel, they just feel inadequate. Like I, my, my studio space doesn't hold up to the, the perfect picture that you put out on Instagram. And so I just wanted artists to start to share in a way that was like, no, this is the real creative process. And sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's dirty. Sometimes it's ugly in a way to kind of just make everybody feel better instead of just seeing the, the perfect idealized studio all the time. And I'll also do things too, where like, I like to show that a lot of that perfect idealized stuff is really just about like strategic cropping and lighting anyway. So I'll do like a really pretty, I'll do a really <laughs> pretty detail where it's like, you know, on like that I've photographed on a piece of white foam core and it looks so beautiful. And then I'll take like three more shots where I just get wider and wider. It's like the, that powers of 10 video. It's like wider and wider. It's like, oh no, here's this little, little tiny space of calm in this giant studio that looks like everything exploded. <laughs> I think that power is, that perspective is so important. And I know that even though you do those things, our brains still trust what they see, mm -hmm. right? Even if it's Photoshopped and all of that. So it's, it is a tricky it is a tricky balance of being on this visual medium and connecting and still being true. Uh, what are some of the common ways that shame shows up with those that you teach and you coach? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is just feeling like the work isn't worth it or they don't, there's a lot of like credential fears. So if you are not traditionally trained, if you don't have a traditionally assigned there, or if you don't have like a BFA or an MFA, then it means the work's not valid, you know, just not being like taken seriously as an artist because you think, you know, well, I just make pretty things or I don't make the right kind of art. Mm -hmm. uh, so much of that. And it's like this, this compounding thing of, um, you know, the art world telling you, you should make certain things. And then, you know, women who are not taught to value their, their work and their worth. And it just all comes together to be, it's just this consistent feeling of like, is my work good enough? Is my work worth it? Comes up all the time. Well, and I think if even we remove the phrase art, it's just, am I good? Am right. I good enough? Am I worth yep. it? I mean, is so foundational to a rumble that so many of us have to navigate on a daily, sometimes hourly mm -hmm. basis, because you talked about the cultural like systems in place, but also the burdens that we carry from our story, whatever that may be too. 
and art is such a it's such an interesting it's it's misunderstood let's just say that and 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 so this leads to another question if you don't follow Megan on social you're just better for it and and, and again I'm wearing a piece of her jeweler that I've had for years and I've got my collection I love your work but it's your thought leadership <laughs> that I actually really value too and you recently went on another uh, soapbox but rants. I would just say they're my th- rants but they're valid what it's a, it was a call in. It was a call in. And you spoke about elitism in the art community. And I, I've got artists in my family. I, I know a lot of people that are in this space. And so I've heard different conversations. I've, I've a lot of colleagues that are, you know, artists too. What field you addressing this topic? Let's just start that. And then we'll dig yeah, in so more. So this has been a little bit of a conversation that I've been having on and off for the last year. Last summer, I read part of a book called The Death of the Artist by William Derisowitz. And there, the amount of elitism in that book was just mind boggling. And so I've been, I've been doing a lot of reading and research and really kind of reflecting on this. And then the other week, I listened to the Art Juice podcast, an episode where Seth Godin was on. And he was really like calling out people and saying like, if you're not making this kind of art, you're not making art, you're just a painter, which was horrifying to me to have him, yeah, to have him on this podcast who I'm sure the majority of the artists that listen are women. And so to have someone who is is outside the art field, he has some tangential relationships through his his family. His mother was on the board of the Albright Knox Art Museum. You know, he's, he's not divorced from art, but he has this very limited understanding of the elite art world. And so when we think about the elite art world, we think of, you know, like the white cube galleries, the museums, kind of the the big ticket auctions. We think of like art, I call it art with a capital A, right? That's what we think of. And Mm. there's this feeling that first of all, if you don't make art for the capital A art world, then you're not really an artist, right? Like that's that's part of this messaging that gets funneled down. And it particularly gets funneled down um, to makers so in the craft sphere because of course then it's like oh well you're you're just a crafter like so you're definitely not making art with a capital a and so you there's so much of that in the atmosphere and when you look at the roots of this you look at the roots of how the gallery system developed how you know kind of museums came about these things were actually created intentionally to be exclusionary like the gallery system was created to exclude women because they were gaining not even like full parity. Like I think it was like 30% of these big group exhibitions, like 30% were women. And, and apparently that was too much. And I should be clear here, white women, 30% was like white women. And that was too much for the white men. And so it was like, oh, we need this gallery system so that we can be more exclusive. And as soon as they kicked in this gallery system at the start of the 20th century, it went from like 30% women to like 7% women, pretty much like huge drop off because it was meant to be exclusionary. And then also these same systems were meant to either exclude artists of color or basically like take their work and say, well, this is a different kind of art, right? It's like, it's this idea of primitive primitivism. And um, this is like different than the, 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 this kind of art. So we can value it, but we won't value the artist, right? Like if you look at how much art from non-Western cultures is in museums as like anonymous, it's like, no, it wasn't anonymous. It's just no one took the time to acknowledge because that wasn't the, who made it because that wasn't the narrative they were trying to tell. And so when you look at all of these factors and how the elite art world was meant to exclude people, to hear someone with the influence of Seth Godin 
still propping up this old system was just so disappointing to me. Like I've been a fan of his work for a long time. And so I was super disappointed to hear this because it's got these very like patriarchal and racist roots. And for me, you know, there's, there's a lot of movements to try to bring more women and more artists of color into kind of the elite art space. And I think that's important, but I'm also interested in just broadening the art world because most of the artists that I know aren't even interested in being in these elite art spaces. Like they, you know, they want to sell work. They want to, you know, they want to work from their studios. They want to sell work to people who are going to bring it into their homes and their lives and enjoy it. And that is the whole sphere of the art world. That's just been like excluded by elitism, but that's the art that I know. And that's the art I grew up with. That was my mom. That's the, you know, the women that I work with. It's what I do. And I think it's so important that we have this much broader understanding of what art is because it it really is a disservice to all of us. Like, I I don't know if you saw back at the start of the pandemic, there was a a survey out of Singapore that was like, what are the most non-essential jobs? (laughs) An artist was like number one. And I just, and and I've written about this in my blog. (laughs) Like if all you think that artists do is create work for like white cube galleries and museums, of course, at the pandemic, you're going to think that art isn't essential. But if we understand that art is, you know, the things we live with in our home and, and all of those things, then suddenly it's like, no, art's actually really, really important. We just have been working off of too narrow an understanding of what art is and who art includes. Okay. So my brain's going in a couple of different areas there. No. So let me just break this down too, because I'm thinking, because even in, in my family of origin, it was like, you're the artist, you're the writer, you're the business strategist, like there was ever and you couldn't be both. There was almost this, uh, there's almost like these, these titles, even though I come from a family where people are very multi-talented, there was still like a silo and you in couldn't, my everyone, too. there was a in higher, my, family too. my sister is yeah. the business brain. I am the artist, even though I run a very successful business, oh, very successful. But I'm also thinking about like, when you talk about, oh, you're just a crafter. Like, and for me, I'm going to be this weekend. I, I've got all the supplies. I'm going to start, I've been feeling the itch to start to make my own candles. And then I've also loved making succulents. So I'm going to try, I've got some things I've been playing around with that I got to get out. But then there's a, there's a narrative, like you're just a crafter. And then, then my entrepreneur side is had me Google selling succulents and candles. And I found out that like some succulents are patented. Like this is what yeah. I went down. I'm like, oh my gosh. So like, what are the things I need to, you know, if I want, if I enjoyed this, right? And so, but I also itching just to get out there and just do something using different, using my body and my brain differently. But their narrative is, it's just a craft. It's just a hobby that, that we're just, mm-hmm. right? This hierarchy, crafter, maker, weekend warrior to side hustle to then, you know, oh, it's just sculpting. Oh, it's just painting, to fine art or some, I don't know if I'm getting all of those right, but I, I just kind of felt this hierarchy as you were oh, talking about that conversation. Sure with there's Seth. a hierarchy. And, and the problem with the hierarchy is that it's very gendered. It's very, you know, racially motivated. And so, you know, the things that fall low on the, the hierarchy, the just a craft or just, you know, again, those are things that have traditionally been associated with women or traditionally associated with non-Western cultures. Um, and so it builds up that like very much the structures of the, of the hierarchy are, are meant to keep, you know, white straight cis men at the top and exclude everybody else. And, and when you look at this, you know, there are two ways to play the game, right? So you can 
try to jump into the art world and critique these, the elite art world and critique these things. Or you can say, no, like we're going to expand the definition of the art world. And for me, I'm really interested in, in the second one. Like I'm interested in that expansive view so that we get rid of things like just, um, you know, just a crafter or like the one that comes up is like, it's, it's merely decorative. That's like, that's a phrase. Ooh, yeah. And I'm like, no, like let's be decorative. Decorative is great. Like what's wrong with decorating other than that it's gendered, you know, towards women. And so really understanding like how those hierarchies are set up so that we can look at our language because there's such validity to like all these different forms of creative expression and they shouldn't be discounted just because it's something that you're doing on the weekend or it's something that was traditionally done by women. We all need these creative outlets and they're all really important. Well, and and going back to your reference, and I forgot about that at the beginning of the pandemic and that survey. Oh, my gosh. And I really appreciated what you said. And now that we're almost at a year, which is wild, almost coming up to the year anniversary here in California, at least where we shut down, you, you, there was this sense, I look back and what saved my mental health, what brought joy and light to me and my family were those that were making things and creating things. It was, whether it was music, whether it was a comic strip, (laughs) whether it was a piece of art or I was reading words. Can you talk a little bit more about why that just really, like some of of your, as you would call rants, what was your rant about that being not important? Yeah, so what I realized is it's like, you know, we're taught, like, you you know, it's the art in the museums that that are the most important. But it was like, no, suddenly, if you can't go to a museum, then that art is not the most important because you can't get there and you can't access it. And so I think that thinking about arts that we are like intimately connected with, that becomes the the most valuable thing. And it suddenly opens that door to so much more creative expression, right? Maybe it's a comic strip, maybe it's music, maybe it's, you know, TV or movies, maybe it's, you know, the, the beautiful handmade mug that you drink your tea out of every morning or the candle that you light every day, right? Those, those things are actually what increases our well-being. And it's actually, if you if you look at it, it's understandable why the elite art world feels like they have to take this defensive stance because then like it's like, oh, art is all around us. And if we suddenly recognize that art is all around us, then maybe we don't need super elite galleries anymore, right? And that's, if you're in the position where your, your livelihood, your life depends on a super elite gallery, then of course you're going to try to create these structures that get rid of it. But to me, that's, that's a small part of what art is. And it's a small part of the way that we experience art. And it's so limiting because we need these things in our life, right? We need joy. We need creativity. We need, you know, I'm a big fan of talking about how we need sensory interaction, right? Like museums, you can't touch anything. Like I am so tactile. I love all my ceramics because I can touch like even my own jewelry to play with. Like we need all of that in our lives to be happy, fulfilled humans. And so that is the power of art. And it's not just things that are hanging in a museum or in a gallery. Why do you think this topic of elitism in the art community is an important issue for leaders, not just artists and artist collectors and consumers? I think it's an important issue because it's really easy to trace the path of how elitism comes out of you know, anti-feminist, you know, racist methodology. And so if we understand that, we can use that same framework to look at where these things take place in, in whatever field you're in, right? Because I think that's what's most important is it's when we look at these conversations, it's showing us, you know, whose work gets valued, whose labor gets valued, whose 
you know, time and expertise gets valued. And that those are important conversations that we need to be having is, you know, who, who do we value? Whose work do we value? And that doesn't mm. just go into the art world, right? Like the, the same factors that, you know, denigrate women crafters are the same factors why, you know, home healthcare workers and domestic workers and women or like childcare, why all of those fields are underpaid too, right? Those are the, it's the same factors. It's about how we value, you know, whose labor we value and whose labor we don't. And when we don't look at that, that's when you have these whole industries that were like, oh, this stuff is essential during the pandemic, but we're still going to pay them like crap. Like there's a reason it's, and it comes back from all of these systemic forces. And so that question of whose labor is, do we value, I think is an important one in every field. Yeah, it's it's it is hard to deconstruct and unlearn that because there is this sense of this is what I'm working for and this is the goal and this is the mountaintop. And there is this sense, and I hear this a lot in these nuanced conversations I've been having, particularly last year on these topics. Well, it's not fair. I did my time. If everyone has access, or uh, what about, you know, there's a little bit, and I'm like, Let's unpack fairness, <laughs> equal and equity, right? And it really is super uncomfortable. It really taps into people feeling like their power is so entrenched in others not having power. And it, it's hard to, you can intellectually go, no, no, I want everyone to have power, right? But then when it comes to sharing some of yours, whew, then it gets, it, it, then the conversation gets a little, well, no, no, I've, I've, I've earned this. But a lot of people don't, but you've had a lot of opportunity, others haven't. So it's an interesting thing about whether elitism, but it's really, to me, it goes to power. And it's just something I've been rumbling a lot. Yeah, and it is. And that's what it, you know, this idea of elitism is it's a small group of people trying to hold on to their power because, you know, Euro-patriarchal culture teaches us that like power is a zero-sum game, right? Like I have power and you don't. And so- that's why we also need to think about like, instead of it going, okay, well, we're trying to, get, you know, take these people right to the top of the mountaintop. Like maybe it doesn't have to be a mountaintop at all, right? Like maybe it's a meadow that we're right. all in together and, you know, looking at different structures and obviously like, that's a, it's a huge, that's a huge thing to unpack. Like we're talking about unpacking, you know, things that are sure. part of our whole culture, our whole society, you know, like this, the, but you know, all of it, like none of it is natural. All of it is the result of teaching and training and upbringing. And so like, if we can be taught to think in like individually, like, no, this is, this is my thing. And each we can also be taught to think collectively. Um, it just, you know, there's a lot of powerful forces that we have to undo, but we have to have the conversations and start to undo them because, you know, all of these fields where you're protecting this elite space, they're not benefiting. They're not benefiting us as a whole, as people, like they're very, they benefit very few people. And I'm ready for a better world, quite honestly. Ready for it too. And we need it desperately. Uh, this, this really leads to my next question, because there's a couple different places we can go. And I, I've always respected how you are a really, really powerful mix of business skills and artist skills like you are you've taught at progress you know was it graduate or undergraduate that you've been a both, professor? I taught both both okay both so you you know so you're you're but you also like you said run a very successful business helping makers develop their own businesses and 
and teaching you teach people how to profit from their creativity. What do you think is behind so many people seeing the value of art and business together? I'm going to ask the question that way. Like we bifurcate those two. Let yeah. So there. I think that that what happens is if you look at, again, going back to like sort of like the history and the development of arts education, you know, art school essentially was set up to replicate the model that like science programs were using, wherein you go, you get these certifications so that you can become essentially become mm. a researcher and work at a university. And art was like, hey, that's a good model. Like we should, we should use that. And so if your goal is to train people to become artists who are also teachers who are inside academia, then there isn't a need to teach them how to make money because you're assuming that they won't. So that's the first thing. And obviously that's starting to shift. Programs are getting cut. Things are falling away. Um, and you know that's a, a whole other conversation because while you know I did go to art school and I think it's super valuable, I also question the morality of putting kids hundreds of thousand dollars into debt to become an artist when there are a lot of different paths to becoming an artist. So, you know, that's, that's a whole other thing we could unpack. Um, yeah, but, but I think, so that's kind of been historically, like there hasn't been a need to teach that sort of business skill because it was like, okay, well, most of you aren't going to be doing this anyway. And as we lose the safety net of academia, then more artists are like, okay, I have to figure out how to make money. I have to figure out how to do this because the alternative is that you have to go get another job or a different job that takes away from your time in the studio and takes away from your time creating. And I think that's really, that's where most artists and makers land is they realize at some point that if you are successfully selling your work, it means you get to create more work. And the flip side is this is why I'm so passionate about teaching artists and makers, because I know, and I believe deep down that art makes all of our lives better you know, the more artists and makers who are succeeding in business, the more art there is in the world. Um, so it's like a virtuous cycle that, that I really want to perpetuate. Um, but there's also this feeling, like you said, like we get siloed of like, you're an art brain, you're a business brain. And the two are not so incompatible. Like we, business is a learnable skill. Like art is a learnable skill. Business is a learnable skill. If you can learn one, you can learn the other. Um, but you also have to be taught it in a way that that feels comfortable and, and understanding to you. So a lot of the, you know, I, like I minored in entrepreneurship and the, there's very little that I learned in my entrepreneurship classes that uh, prepared me for running my own business, which you would have thought entrepreneurship would be like the, the thing, right? But I, I, as far as hard skills go, very few. Um, but yeah, huh. but like, and so like if you were to go get your MBA, you're probably not going to learn very much that's going to help you as a solo artist. Um, so part that's what I think part of my job is as a teacher and a, and a coach is, is translation, right? Like look at this is how this works for this type of business, but let's talk about how it works for our type of business and making money as a creative because it, it, they all look different, right? It's things that work for um, service providers don't always work for artists and vice versa. So um, really that's part of my job is just helping artists see like these are the things that that do apply to us and they're learnable. Like you can learn them. That's so interesting because it is just not a message that I got growing up that everything is learnable. Like that just wasn't, it was what's your thing and do it. It's that, like that modernity mindset, you know, yeah. like just hunker down, do your thing, grind it out. But that it's everything is learnable if you want to and put in the time to practice. Right. So it, I have right? the most incredible story about this, which comes back to my mother. So 
we, you know, I was a, a smart kid, as were my siblings. And so we were tested for our school's gifted program very early um, in where they do an IQ test. And um, we would, you know, my mom knew we took the test, like I got into the gifted program. And she would never tell me my IQ. She would say, it does not matter. Your IQ does not matter. It is what you do with it that matters. It does not matter. It is just a number. And so, you know, you you do the work, you do things. Like she's like, I don't want you to skate by just thinking like you're smart and you don't have to do things. So I she's like, it's high enough, it's fine. Never knew. So after she died, I was cleaning out paperwork and I found that IQ test from first grade. And what struck me was not my IQ, but in that test, it said I had scored below average in creativity. Shut the I front door. never once in my life, from my mother, from anyone, was told that I was not creative. I never heard that. Think about how different my life had been if my mom had said, well, you're smart, but you're not creative, Right. How different would my life have been? And I think that's what it is, right? This idea that like you need that support to say like you can do this, you can learn this, you can change, you can grow. That to me is like just the – it's something we all need to hear. And you're right. We don't hear it enough. And I'm just thinking of the messages that we send. And even as we're looking at those in our communities, those that we lead, even ourselves, how we silo ourselves – or even got that message early on. And you know, Brene's written about, Brene Brown's written about this, about how people have those early mm-hmm. art shame or art wounds that shut down their own creative expression or their own confidence to even just create and express, regardless of whether that's about their career or not, and how unexpressed creativity turns mm-hmm. malignant, how that it our mental well-being, let alone our physical well-being. Um, wow. What did you do with that story? So you sat there, you look at the report, you see the IQ, but you see that feedback. What do you do with that? Like, how did that I, integrate? It, it was just like, that I think was one of just those sheer moments of gratitude for my mother being the person that she was and going, like, her deciding to keep that piece of information for me changed my whole life, right? Like, my life would have been so different if I had had a different parent who took that report to heart and said, well, no, like you're smart, but you're not creative. And instead it was like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your IQ says. It doesn't matter what a test says. It matters like what you do and how you show up in the world. And if you want to, if you want to try for something, you try it. If you want to go for something, you go for it, whether you're good at it or not, you just, you try and, and you do. And when you're encouraged to do that, it just, it opens up all kinds of doors. Because, and like, there are things that I'm bad at. I'm not saying I'm good at everything, but that willingness to try huh. is so important. And for so many of us, we're not encouraged to try and because we're afraid of failure. I was just going to ask <laughs> yeah. you a question about failure because I was yeah. like, okay, because like some, I think of my son and he, <laughs> he, he's got one of those incredible brains too. He, he pretty much broke the state test on, but he also has learned early on if things, things have been so easy. And then when they get hard, he starts to melt down. And I'm like, he's like, I want to be the best. I want easy. I'm like, nope. And we might keep having him do so your success in life is going to be how you deal with struggle, not your ease and your identity is not just in what's easy for you. And he's, I mean, 
the kid's 10. He's almost 11. He's like, mom, I want some. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, you will struggle. <laughs> you will struggle. And he'll be talking to his future therapist. He's <laughs> like, my mom got me some slack. No, I hope it's a different issue at least. But I was wondering for you as a kid, did you ever rumble with fear of failure? So I will say, you know, I had a bit of some perfectionist tendencies. Like I was a straight A student all through high, you know, from first grade through high school. Um, and, and part of that was I, a lot of classes weren't challenging for me, right? Like I, I was very smart. I am very smart. I'm not going to use past tense. I am very smart. I'm going to claim that I am very smart. Um, and so it was not usually hard for me to get straight A's. Um, but I remember one time like saying to my mom, like you, you forced me to get straight A's. And she was like, no he's like <laughs> would you have been happy if you hadn't gotten an a and i was like oh no wait like that was actually me um and and so i but i think like at the same time somewhere early on like i actually learned that there is value in learning from mistakes um and so yeah it's, it's everything it is, it's everything and, and it really actually, is some are, some yes. are bigger than others. Yeah. Let me just say. Like, I actually I mean, got in a fight but, once with my tenth grade chemistry teacher because he wouldn't let us review like our old quizzes, and I was like, "Don't!" But I was like, "We need to learn from our mistakes." And he was like, "No, that's not a valid way to learn." And then like contradicted himself ten minutes later in class. It was so frustrating. Um, oh no, my he, gosh! I, he, it was like old white guy. He we did not see eye to eye at all. Um, needless to say, I did not become a chemist. <laughs> um, and but so like right somewhere along the way, like even though I I had that like striving for good grades and and wanting to do well, th- there was also just I think that embrace of like you can do things you can do things you're bad at you can do things you're like mediocre at like you know like I took singing classes even though I'm I'm not a great singer but it was fine and like I took. I took dance class in high school. It's not something I was very committed to, but I was like, once a week, I just want to go to a jazz class and like move my body. And it was like, you're allowed to do these other things. You're, you're allowed to have these interests and you don't have to pursue everything as like, it's going to be your career. You're allowed to try and do a lot of different things. Well, perfectionism shuts down the Mm -hmm. curiosity and space to try. So it doesn't sound like perfectionism got into your no and I feel very grateful for that because so many of the artists and makers I work with they it did get into their their system and I actually Mm. what's funny is I had a really lengthy conversation with my husband about it recently where I said like I don't believe like he is a very much perfectionist and it it shuts down his ability to do a lot of things for sure like he won't do say like a project around the house because he's like well I can't make it perfect so then it's not worth doing at all and so he and I got in a very long conversation where I was like I don't believe that perfect exists like I just don't believe that that's a thing and so if you are like well perfect I can't be perfect so then I'm gonna let it go and like actually I read this book when I was in elementary school and it is stuck with it's like every kid in the world should read this book it was called how to be a perfect it's like how to be a perfect person in like three simple steps or three days or something like that it was a kid's book and <laughs> the, the idea was that this this kid sent off for this course about how to be a perfect person and at the end of the day it was like to be a perfect person you have to sit in your room and do nothing except sip iced tea, but then also make sure that you don't spill the iced tea because then you're not perfect. So basically it was like being perfect is it equated being perfect with really boring, like being really boring. And I was like, I don't, I don't want that. Like I, I, that doesn't sound interesting to me. So like now I, like I, it's amazing that like a kid's book could be that transformative, but it like basically taught me that like, you're never going to huh. be perfect. So 
just embrace life because if you want to be perfect, you can't do anything. And I was like, I want to do all the things. So <laughs> there's no room for perfectionism. Well, the protector of perfectionism wants certainty and trying doesn't, trying yeah. is like, you know, terrifying to that part of us. If it, that's on steroids, we want the certainty, we want the known because we're afraid of not belonging. Yeah. We're afraid that's when our worthiness is externalized. Well, and then, I think right? too, like I think about, so my childhood was obviously like incredibly supportive and that continued over to like my mom, my mom was one of 10. So really big family, you know, so we would go visit my oh, grandparents wow. in the suburbs of Philly and they had, my, my mom was the second oldest. So big house, always lots of people, um, lots of chaos. But when I think about it, it's like, but it was the good kind of chaos, right? We'd show up and there were cousins and you'd play and like my, there were stacks of old National Geographic magazines. And like, you were always discovering like musical instruments and old pictures. Like it was this rambling three-story house because it had to be because 10 kids um, and books and plants and music <laughs> and art and like all of the things. And so it was chaos, but it was the good kind of chaos because we all knew we were loved and supported. And so I think, and like, even like, you know, our house was messy growing up for kids, people always over like that same kind of thing. But yet, you know, dinner was always on the table. You want to, you know, it was like, Hey, I want to do this, of course, like go do that. And so I think there's something very rare in growing up with like that kind of chaos and uncertainty and unpredictability in a way that is incredibly safe. Right. Cause I know there are kids who grew up in chaos yeah. where it, it was chaos because it was not safe. Right. And and for sure. And so Absolutely. I don't want to say like raise your kids in chaos. That's because <laughs> that's not the solution. But this ability to, you know, we weren't overscheduled. We could explore, we could do things. But at the end of the day, you were loved and supported and respected. And like that, it's just a, a powerful combo that I feel so lucky um, because it saved me like 10 years of therapy, 20, 30, a lifetime of therapy by growing up in that environment. And think about how we run our, our businesses or how a lot of spaces are, even museums you talk about or stores. It's always stay in your lane and here's the, okay, and this is how kids are supposed to act and this is how grownups are supposed to act. And you went into this space where your worthiness and safety weren't on the line and you had opportunity and even, and it was okay to not be certain about, there was a place oh, of yeah. discovery versus the shoulds. And I think it's something we try and control because here in, San Diego, they just announced that they're going to be opening up schools. And so many people are just like, well, do I even believe that? And I want certainty. Mm -hmm. I want to know exactly what's going on, you know? And and I, I mean, sure. I mean, this it's been, a, it's been a long haul for a lot of us, no doubt. But being able to be flexible with the uncertainty has been a stretch. It's like I've been able to really see folks who had that little capacity to, to handle a little bit more of the uncertainty of life. And, and it, it's interesting that organized chaos, but if we hyper control, if we don't trust people, if we put them and say, this is what's okay for you and tell them that versus letting people discover that we don't stay curious and learn from everyone around us. The, those are the things I'm hearing from you that really fostered your confidence in how you lead yourself and how you lead those in your yeah, community. And I, well, and I beautiful. think too, like, that idea of leadership to you, I mean, like I was the oldest girl cousin. So like I was used to taking on like a leadership <laughs> role in from like a young I age. Bet. Um, and so I think that's important too, but as you were talking, it, you know, it makes me think, so I, I coach high school cross country and, you know, what I love about 
coaching cross country as a sport is it's like, it's the least structured sport. And I coach boys and girls and the head coach is a Mm. woman. Um, So first of all, like our boys get two like powerful female role models, which is super incredible. Um, But you know, like we'll take them to places so they can run in the woods and we'll say like, you got, you know, you run for 30 minutes or, you know, we do not since COVID, but like we do an end of the season party at my family's farmhouse and I let them run around. And it's amazing to me, like, like these kids, they don't get, they don't get that unstructured time anymore. They don't get that time to just like be, you know, amongst themselves and explore. And, and, you know, I always joke, like I, I look at our middle school boys and I'm like, Lord of the flies could really happen. I, I see it. Like I could see that. I see like the pig head. We're not, we're like two steps away from pig head on the stick. Okay. We got to like pay attention there. But you know, like, but at the same time that like <laughs> we give our kids a little bit of freedom and it lets them mature as, as leaders and as humans and, and deal with kind of that ability to deal with uncertainty, which, but in a supported environment. And, and I'm just struck too. I'm thinking about what are the shoulds I'm putting on myself that is constricting my freedom as that's a core value of mine. And I've been rumbling with some big things and just like nothing serious, just kind of meaning of life and what I want to do in this next season of life, all that stuff. And there's a lot of those shoulds and those constraints that limit creativity and innovation versus just go yeah. and play, go and discover. And and instead of having, I want to know the end game and then reverse engineer it. Sometimes we just have to go try. Sometimes we have to go try. And again, that's, there's a lot of privilege in that for some, but I, I think it's even what permission do I need to give myself more right now for something? Well, so that's, that's and for really me, you know, I think there's a big part of giving yourself permission, that permission when you call yourself an artist, right? Like I can get away with things, get away with things, right? Like, which is just a funny way of saying it, right? So like, you know, I remember like, again, pre-COVID, like going to um, a bar with a friend and I had very, very bright colored hair for a while. I don't because it's COVID. And like someone commented, my friend was like, oh yeah, she can get away with that. Like she's an artist. And I was like, oh, sure. Like it gives you like carte blanche. Like, and I, there's that permission there of like, when you say I'm an artist, I can get away with it. That like, lets you kind of do whatever the F you want. <laughs> okay. So let's listen yeah. to my last question. And, and, you, and I remember, you know, mm-hmm. who Corey Huff is, right. And he runs the abundant artist and we were in a peer mastermind for several years together. And I said like something about everyone's an artist. And he's like, Oh no, no, not everyone's an everyone's. He said, that's a disrespect to a lot of these artists. So can, a lot of times creative and artist are used interchangeably. And I'm wondering how you define these terms. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I, I don't fall totally fully on the side of like, I disagree that everyone's an artist. I think there is like artist, there's artists by training, right? Artist, when we think about it, it denotes like certain, you're working with certain materials or certain ideas or certain forms of expression, right? I think that's how we tend to define artists is like, you're working in certain defined forms of expression. Whereas creativity is something that you can apply to, you know, anything, right? You can be creative in your, in your solutioning, in your, in your problem solving and and all of those things. Um, You know, for me, what actually is most interesting in the conversation and the one that I think we don't talk about enough is imagination. Because I think that that Mm. a, a lot of what we're missing is imagination, which is the ability to 
think about alternatives to picture a world that's different, to picture something that's different. Or like when we talk about empathy, um, empathy is the ability to imagine yourself in someone else's situation. And if we don't, if we can't imagine, we can't have empathy. And so for me, like, I think creativity is important, but I think that what, what we're also losing and what we lose when we don't encourage art is we lose imagination, right? Because now creativity can kind of be like anyone's domain, but this uh, imagination is still really only taught for artists. And it's kind of only taught for like a small subset of artists. But I think imagination is like, that's, that's the word I want to bring back into the conversation that we're missing. Um, Okay. What role do you see those words and those expressions and practices in leadership today? Yeah, I think, um, I think they're important because we have to acknowledge that like there is no prescribed path, right? Like we, we want that Mm. certainty and it doesn't. No, tell me there's a path. Give me the path. path. And that, and I think that's actually, this is the problem that we so want that path that there are people, I'm going to say masquerading as leaders, right? Who are making a lot of money in their businesses because they're promising people a path. And they're saying, if you follow X, Y, Z steps, you will get there. And that sounds comforting, right? Like we've all fallen for it. We've all been like, oh, yes. Good marketing is good marketing. It speaks to the... Because we want that certainty. And it's scary to say like, no, that certainty doesn't exist, right? Like that it doesn't exist. And so this is where creativity, imagination... It lets us step up and say, like, I don't know. I don't know the future. I don't know what's going to happen. But like, so to me, creativity is that like, try it and see approach. It's like, I'm going to try this thing, see what it works, reflect on the outcome. And that's super important. And then imagination is the ability to say, this is the future that I want. And like, I don't know how to get there because there's no certainty. But like, if I can hold on to this picture of the future that I want, I can work towards it. And that for me is imagination. So something you did, And so what just hit me is so many people that have a hard time really believing the future they want is possible is tied yes. into imagining. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm going to have to sit on this and think about, okay, yes, if we're not imagining it enough. And there's probably a lot of par- parts that protect us from imagining. What if it doesn't happen? What if I get hurt? You know, and there's a lot of that protective stuff and the burdens of, perfectionism say, no, I, I need certainty or well, it might be death, right? It might be yeah, whatever I it may be. be. I used to be a huge worry wart, like huge worry wart. And I, and I think we know like a lot of artists and creatives struggle with anxiety, um, you know, with, with worrying all of those things. And I know it sounds like cliche to say like a Pinterest quote changed my life, but a quote on Pinterest literally changed my life because it said, worry is a misuse of imagination. And I was like, holy, it like made my brain make sense because it was like, I don't worry because there's something wrong with me. I worry because I have a very vivid imagination. And as soon as I understood that, anytime I would feel myself like worrying about something, I'd be like, no, let's channel this into a positive imagination. Like I'm a, I was, I still can be, I mean, I haven't been on plane in a year, but like a very nervous flyer. 
And it was because like the imagination and the worry. So I'd be like, okay, nope, we're going to visualize like what I'm going to do when I get there, like who I'm going to see, what food I'm going to eat, places I'm going to go. And like on the way home, it was like, I'm going to visualize like how I'm going to feel when I get home and how nice it's going to be like see my husband and sleep in my own bed. And so it was like, oh, when I understand that it's, it's imagination and imagination can be channeled positively instead of channeled negatively in worry. That's exactly right. Because the anxiety, the protector of anxiety wants to anticipate all the possibilities of the future. But if we invite in anticipating mm-hmm. good or desired outcome too, and not just lead ourselves from anticipating all the ways things could go wrong, that's a that's a really curious intervention there. That's a really... And did that was that helpful? Did you oh, feel that immediately. shift immediately it's, it's for you? It's such a huge difference. And like even like my friends, my one of my friends was like, she's like, you never worry. You're so like laid back. And I was like, okay, first of all, like it's very, very only recently in my life that anyone ever call, would call me laid back. But it's because I was able to like make that shift and say, okay, like when I feel, you know, feel the worry kicking, and I'm like, nope, this is your imagination. Our imagination, imagination is good. It's positive. Let's channel it that way. So you're leading those parts of you that are worried to anticipate also the good too. And also befriending the worry. You befriended it first to help change it. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. All from a Pinterest quote. I love it. You know, every now and then the cliche works, (laughs) but that's a good one. That's a really good one. This was such a treat. Megan, thank you. Where can people find you if they want to learn from you? They want to buy any of your art? Where can people um, get a hold yeah, of you? Yeah, so and you can go you? to my website at meganalman.com. Um, and that's also me on Instagram at meganalman. Um, and then if you are interested specifically, so that's, and you can find my jewelry there, you can find my classes there. Um, and then if you're interested specifically in my online community um, mentorship program, that is Artists and Profit Makers, which you can find at artistsandprofitmakers.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Megan. I value you. I value what you create. And I value how not only as I learned more today, how you lead yourself, but how you lead others. So thank you so much for this time today. And thank you for how you show up in the world. Thank you for having me. The leaders who have taught me the most about respecting the wholeness of each person are the ones who welcome the diverse, messy, and complicated aspects of being human, instead of compartmentalizing people and exiling their experiences. They don't shy away from something because it feels difficult or takes them off the plan schedule. They do the work to stay curious, to learn, to redirect expectations. Now, take a moment and reflect on how you may be compartmentalizing parts of your life or the lives of others. What fears and concerns show up when you consider respecting the wholeness of people and their stories? And what support do you need to help you better understand and hold space for the many parts of you and your story instead of compartmentalizing or exiling them? Megan had a powerful model for respecting the wholeness in people in her mom. And now she is that person to so many she leads, teaches, and mentors. And so the call is for us to expand this kind of impact and respect wholeness in ourselves and in those around us. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. 
finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is on a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 